Okay, welcome back to the AEC Hive podcast, where we're talking about innovation in architecture, engineering, and construction. I'm Ralph Montague, director at ArcDocs and uh, co-founder of the AEC Hive. I'm joined with my fellow co-founder, John Egan. John, you want to say hi to everybody? Hi, everyone. This is John Egan. I'm CEO at BIM Launcher and co-founder at AEC Hive. I'm delighted to be back here with you all for another show today. We're really excited today to be joined by Sasha Reed, who's the Director of Industry Advancement for Procore Technologies, formerly Vice President of Strategic Development at Bluebeam, co-founder of the uh, Construction Progress Coalition, which John and I are great fans of. So, Sasha, you, you're really welcome. And maybe you could, just to get started, you might give a short introduction about yourself, your background for our listeners, and, and we could take it from there. Excellent. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me today. I've been following you all on Twitter, looking at all the amazing interviews you're having and the important conversations you're fostering. If anyone knows uh, the body of work that I've assembled the last 17 years being in industry, I'm a huge fan of conversations. <laughs> I feel that so many of the challenges we're trying to solve and so many of the problems we're trying to solve in architecture, engineering, construction are three-dimensional. And I believe the three dimensions we should primarily focus on are people, process. And even though I've spent 13 years working in the technology space, the final piece should be technology only applied once you understand who the people are and what is the process they're trying to follow. So really excited to be here today to add to this conversation. Just a little bit of background. Yes, I have been in the industry now for about 17 years. I started out working for a specialty contractor and really kind of cut my teeth in the industry that way. It was a Herman Miller furniture dealer. So we got to come in after all the dust was settled and the dirt. And I said, all the fun stuff was completed. We came in and then installed furniture. So a little bit of a stepchild to the industry. But nonetheless, the firm that I worked for only had 12 people. So it was a small business. And when I started, my colleague and I really tried to push the business to leverage technology so we could innovate and do things a little smarter. And I saw that when the right technology is applied, um, even the small businesses can compete with some of the bigger players. By nature, that's the whole point of technology. Um, and this was even before we had moved to the cloud. But the point is to be able to, to deliver a high deliverable, but to not have to do such manual labor to get there. A little bit of pre-thought thinking around how you, you pull together all the information and present that information to your partners and your project partners is makes a world of difference in how you actually execute on the project. After five years working there, I was actually going to leave that firm and I wanted to go get my construction management license and, and to get certified because um, I loved the field. I loved the orchestrated chaos that happened in the field with uh, the collision of trade partners and the revisions of the drawings. And as frustrating as it was, I really felt like it was a unique set of individuals who are able to perform in that position. But as fate would have it, I was actually recruited by the CEO of a young startup in 2007. And the startup was Bluebeam, and he recruited me to come on board. At that time, they didn't have a formal sales process. So the CEO and I together created the go-to-market strategy and how we wanted to go to market. And we ended up not hiring salespeople. We hired youth pastors, educators, teachers, industry professionals who were just burnt out, still love the industry, but were really burnt out from the high stress that is construction. 
And so we hired individuals who love solving problems. And that's how we started our go-to-market strategy. And that turned out to be very a very wise move and very successful on our parts. And so I spent 12 years with Bluebeam. And uh, after about five years of leading the sales team, I kind of morphed into more of a strategic development role, which you um, mentioned in the beginning. And that's where I started working with professionals within industry and the Construction Progress Coalition was born out of the necessity of technology was changing the way um, contractors wanted to receive digital deliverables, but our standard organizations weren't keeping pace. So we kind of started this grassroots group, the Construction Progress Coalition, to talk about how we bring practitioner technology and owners together to define new standards. Because as we continue to innovate, there's obviously a need for new guidance and new standards. So um, did that work for quite a few years. And and now um, it leads me to, to where I am today with Procore. I saw the work that Procore was doing in industry and I saw the way that they were approaching um, technology from a platform perspective, looking at connecting the owner contractor, specialty contractor uh, on one singular platform. And to me, that is the future. I mean, I've been watching the UK and what the UK is doing with BIM standards, ISO 19650. And I think we're all trying to crack the same nut, which is interoperability, making sure that data can flow between. So what I saw happening on Procore's end, I said, this is to me the future. So I came on board last year uh, to Procore as Director of Industry Advancement. Wow, that's an incredible <laughs> career. And I've, I mean, my, my mind's buzzing now with questions, but uh, I love uh, what just what you said there, the intersect between the, the people process and technology and um, and strategy. I suppose that's one of the things we've talked a bit about on this program is about innovation and how innovation has to be deliberate, not something that just happens by chance, you know, just sort of you don't stumble across in innovation by accident. Or maybe sometimes you do, but yes. um, but you know, it has to be quite strategic. I mean, is that what you feel? Because you've been involved in very innovative companies like, you know, taking a startup like Boobeam through its journey and uh, you know, in another company like Procore. Would you agree with that, that strategy yeah. is, is really important when it comes to innovation? Yeah, 100%. You know, I, I talk about construction and it, its past state, not so much the current state, we're getting better, but it, it really was orchestrated chaos, coordination in the field. How do you get the right people to the field at the right time with the most current up-to-date information in the format they need it? That was kind of the challenge as I saw it when I moved into technology was making sure the information was digestible, receivable, and actionable by the different parties involved, which meant that information needed to be presented differently. And what that means to me is the hard job is really on the shoulders of the technology providers to make sure that what they create from a technical standpoint is simple, simple enough for adoption, intuitive enough where you overcome barriers of resistance to change, because that's truly, we're still trying to disrupt paper in many, many cases, but it really is the, the, so the other side of that burden then falls on the shoulders of the industry to be very good at understanding who are their people, what is the nature of the work they do, and then what are the processes that should be put in place in order to create consistency. And I think it must be intentional 
there's a, a really interesting idea here. In construction, we avoid risk at all costs. And this is a real reason why we try to build virtually first is to reduce unneeded risk and waste and, and issues that cause real health problems for individuals in the field who deliver the work and try to assemble the imagination of, of what a designer engineer can imagine. And I think one of the ways we become good stewards of those labors in the field is to make sure we've done as much coordination up front to um, synthesize what are the uh, different parts and pieces coming together. Well, the only way that happens is with intention because the way our contracts are written today, we're not really incentivized to think about it holistically as an assembly line. So our contracts won't change, and I don't believe, until we've proven we can mitigate as much risk as possible through greater openness and collaboration earlier. So that's why I think it, it definitely must be intentional. Yeah. And then just on your last point there, collaboration, that probably brings me into the, the question around people, you know, and yeah. the different people and, and, and maybe a little bit about the perception of the construction industry. And I think it's more of a perception than maybe a, a complete reality of the construction industry being a sort of monolithic type of entity of strong men with dirty boots and corruption. Yeah. And But obviously that's not entirely true because behind the scenes, there's all sorts of different types of people, scientists, acoustic scientists, engineers, people who are investigating materials. And, you know, there's, there's all sorts of things that feed into the the construction industry. So it's, it is quite a diverse industry anyway. But you've, you've spent a lot of time in, in the area of advocacy and trying to maybe change the perception and attract different types of people. And I liked your example earlier of, you know, bringing social workers and you know, mm -hmm. a, a different type of mix of people because it's at the end of the day collaboration is all about people and people work managing to work together in a way that brings a, a better result so tell us a little bit about your thoughts on the people side and 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 maybe also your thoughts on the perception of the industry around people and yeah, that is true. And and I actually, in my new role at Procore, um, my day job is to lead the Procore.org team. And so what that means is the next generation is not only um, uh, field enabled, but tech ready. So the team delivers free software and training and implementation for university professors. We also provide it to nonprofit builders who are building sustainable housing and rebuilding communities after disasters. But the other piece of it, there's two other pillars. One is education. So creating free certifi certified content. So individuals already in the industry can continue to upskill themselves. Part of that is a donation to trade unions so that we work with trade union trainers who are training the existing workforce in the field to help them through the evolution of the adoption of technology, which they are probably bearing the strongest point of friction and pressure from all the innovations happening months before it ever reaches their hands. And we recognize that they probably need the greatest support to evolve and change. So we donate the software there. And then the third and final piece is really advocacy, looking at how are we as a construction industry, looking ourselves and our culture in the mirror to become the employer of choice because we are not. It, it's just the fact. To, to your point, the perceptions of construction have really changed since 
the beginning of time, really. But but myself, Fred Mills, and the whole team at the B1M are doing the really important work, which is it's an entire overhaul, public relations overhaul of the image of construction. And the reality is, it is exactly what you said. There are acoustic engineers, there are geologists, there are uh, lighting engineers. There are so many um, amazing minds that go into how a project is built before boots ever touch ground. There's so much opportunity for individuals to come in and play an important role in this industry. And, And I think from what I've observed, I believe we're never going to truly innovate and solve our problems unless we have people who think differently really sitting at the table, trying to come up with solutions. And so when it comes to the image of construction, Procore was gracious enough to give me the closing keynote for Groundbreak. And I chose that time to interview uh, four different educators within the workforce development space um, here in the U.S., a university professor, the head of ACE Mentor, the head of um, AGC of California, which is American General Contractors of California. They have a Build California Workforce Development Program and the CEO and leader of Construct Reach, which focuses around minority engagement in construction. I mean, it was started by Target. And so when I spoke to them, the, the two biggest challenges they have, talking about bringing new talent and sourcing new talent into construction is parents of young adults. And in the US, it's high school. So, you know, you're looking at ages 16 to 18 or 15 to 18 year olds. Mm-hmm. Um, they're guidance counselors who are advising them on what careers to choose. First of all, if a kid comes home with a pamphlet around construction saying, dad, I really want to work in construction. and I want to be a pipe fitter. The parent is the number one. No, son, that's not the path we want you to go. We didn't work two jobs to save up some money for you to become a pipe fitter because the image of construction hasn't changed. So we Mm. must do a better job. And this is where I love what Fred Mills and the B1M are doing to show parents that construction is a viable career. And second, really start working at that primary level with those educators, influencers to say, here is what a career in construction in 2020, 2021 actually looks like. And we're just now starting to partner with these groups to say, how do we create curriculum that we can put in the high schools to excite the students? So we started doing Easter egg hunts within a BIM model. So we're teaching educators how to leverage our platform with BIM and uh, to teach them what it looks like to navigate a a 3D model. So -hmm. when they come home, they're showing their parents something very different to challenge that perception. And I didn't realize, I I really didn't realize that those were the two targets we really need to reach out to and to reimagine and to represent from a public relations standpoint, what construction is. And it's, it's what is probably most exciting about the work I'm doing now is to expose those individuals to the realities of what construction is and get them excited. I suppose the first thing is when you're in construction and you think about it, you, you, you're literally building the world. I mean, you're doing something incredibly important to all of society. There's not one thing that society does that doesn't somehow <laughs> engage with the built environment, you know, whether where you work yeah. or live or go to school, or, you know, get treated or go shopping or, you yeah. know, it involves the built environment. So it's, you know, if your choice is, do I build a new video game or a new app 
that may or may not be used for a couple of years or do I build something that's going to support all of society? You know, you'd, you'd think that would be an attractive career choice, but it's not. And and we, we all know that we have skill shortages in in the construction industry, so we just don't have enough people with the skills. And we also have an aging workforce, which, which tells you that young people are not sort of entering into the construction sector as a career of choice. So that, so that, that's amazing what you're doing and the work at sort of second level education and almost educating the parents yes. <laughs> which, and the teachers, which is um, incredible. And I suppose that's the people side of it. And and then the technology side, John, obviously the, the, we're coming into your area, but you know, technology and standards and like John and I are great fans of the work you you are doing at uh, CPC. I love your slogan, the, the shared pains. You know, so you're sort of taking a, a hard look, as you, as you said, in the mirror at you know the way things are actually working on the ground and bringing parties together to to have open discussions about how how can we do things better? How can we alleviate some of these pains? And do you have any particular questions there, John? Or well, one thing I really like about the CPC coalition and the work that you're doing there is really around, I suppose, the plain language aspect of communicating problems. For instance, you know, I regularly see uh, tweets and pieces of information around ISO 19650 and how you need to be, you know, you have to have your jargon buster hat on to read it. (laughs) And I really like you know, the, that visual language that you guys have created around, specifically around the interoperability of different solutions, that must be something that you recognized, you know, a long time ago that you were like, okay, well, you know, you might, you must have found that a lot of the discussions belong to the so-called experts in the industry were largely going over people's heads within, yeah. within the industry or you know, the guys on the ground. I know, you know, I can, I can tell you, for instance, like I have, I have family in construction and, you know, nothing that we do in the digital space, they, they know about. And I think it's a huge, huge issue. And I'd love if we could, um, I suppose, remove that barrier because, you know, that that's a point of inertia really for the industry and the progress of adoption of, Digital, digitalization and construction. Could you talk to us a bit about the, I suppose, the background to that? And I mean, is yeah. my is the way that I perhaps perceive what happened really how it happened? How did it come about, and and where is that going in the future? Well, I'll, I will start by giving credit where credit is due. Nathan Wood, who's the executive director for the CPC, has been our tireless leader for the last six or seven years, really kind of taking the charge because it is important work, but it is as essential as it is to us realizing the investment in technology, which is really what this is about. It's in addition to everyone's day job. So so for Nathan Wood to take up the lead on this and really continue to drive the CPC forward is really where the credit is due. I've been grateful to be alongside him in that. But the the beginnings were really the mother, invention is the mother of necessity, as they say. So at that time, I was, it was about 2013, 2014, I was working at Bluebeam overseeing sales and a customer reached out to us and said, hey, I, I just finished my first entirely paperless project I'm about to launch my second project. 
but I realized I have to start all over. I have to get the designer on board and explain to them how I need the PDFs created so that I can leverage them um, through Bluebeam to do all these additional workflows. The workflows were kind of built off the PDF. Then I have to get the engineer on board for orientating the paper. So we have the same paper orientation. And, and he just started going down a list of all these people he had to re-educate. And he said, it shouldn't be this way. It's 2013. We should be able to do a paperless project. So he said, would you help me in creating standards around digital deliverables? And uh, I volunteered, raised my hand, volunteered and said, absolutely. And so he and I just started calling and emailing everybody we knew on the general contractor side and said, would you be willing to come together to create uh, an ask list of the designer? What do you need as a general contractor? And so we did, we pulled together a group of GCs who could come together and agree upon, okay, what do we really need in digital deliverables? How do we really need this created? Then we brought the designers to the table and said, okay, here is our ask, redline this, tell us what's possible, what's not possible. And then during one of Bluebeam's user conferences, we actually hosted the owner, the designer, and the general contractor to come sit at a table together. And I was lucky enough to be able to facilitate this process. And so when I sat at the table and they self-segregated, by the way, the GCs all sat on one side and the designers all sat on the other side, totally unprompted. And as they started to walk line by line through the asks and started to share information, I saw something that shocked me. And what I saw was how naive the GC was to the, the designer's world and how they get paid and what, what matters to them based on liability and payment and vice versa. How flexible the general contractor was and how willing to, willing to just get the work done the GC was. And as they started going line item by line on him, kind of explaining, well, this isn't possible because of this, or I can absolutely do that, but nobody's ever asked me. We just really haven't uh, made sure that as we're approaching the uh, innovations through technology, that we are over communicating why things need to change, what the benefit is for the individuals who are doing that work, and make sure what we're asking is done understanding the perspective of the other person on the receiving end. And so to me, that became very clear, like a, a big part of what's going to drive innovation forward is communication. How are we creating shared understanding? How are we, as we're evolving, how are we taking people with us on the journey? And so as we went through that process and, and kind of Nathan and I were both in the process and, and saw this, Nathan pulled me to the side and he's like, Sasha, there's a huge part of this work that's all in your wheelhouse, which is communication, fostering conversations, marketing, content. He said, you know, I really think that uh, we could work really well together in this space. And he's, he's been trying to convince me to come on board full time for many years. Uh, but I continue to do it because he's he's right. But I still love the technology side so much. I can't give it up. But I, I really, I really, truly believe that there is a role for individuals in these project teams, standard organizations uh, who are expert facilitators, who have the skill to help individuals who may be on opposing sides to disagree, articulate their disagreements clearly, and then get them to move beyond. <laughs> because what I found is people will stay in their dogma of, I can't do this because of this. 
But when you actually pull them into a room face by face with a moderator or somebody who's who's facilitating the conversation, they get to that space. And what you do is you let them exhaust their why nots until they're still having to look at each other and they see the other person is very much like them. They're passionate. They want to do it the right way. They want to do it better, but they've never necess- they haven't necessarily been given the opportunity to sit across the table from each other, exhaust all the reasons why they can't do it the way each or the other wants to, to then say, okay, well, what can we create as a new shared level of understanding or a different way to deliver this together? And that's the one piece that's been missing. And that's really what the CPC is trying to do. It's creating and fostering those moments of how can we get these people sitting in a room together? And we do it virtually now through our roundtable discussions every month. But how do we get them to sit into a room where they're looking at each other, even virtually talking through all the, the limitations or all the reasons why they can't do a certain thing? And then what inevitably happens is because they recognize the other person is not the enemy, they have the same interest. That interest then drives them forward to say, okay, well, let's challenge our assumptions and let's see how we could do this differently. How do we work on this more effectively? And I think that's really the been what the CPC has done such a great job of doing is not only creating guidelines, but elevating the interaction beyond a what I will call a linear workflow of review process to you land on a standard. Because my true feeling is it's standards are great. Standards are important. Standards are necessary for things like an RFI or request for information or snagging or punching at the end of a job or going through materials submissions, like what materials, those workflows are so common and consistent And with digital uh, technology innovation, we can standardize those things to a point where technology can do the heavy lifting. The challenge I have found is that in the US especially, the general contractor viewed that as their intellectual property, their competitive advantage. And what I've been trying to foster through these conversations with CPC is you're misdirecting what is your competitive advantage. Your competitive advantage is how you align your people and how you align them to that process and your choices of technology, specifically if it's integrated technology, that can actually share that digital information beyond the action and the activities. And so that's really where I I see what the CPC is doing is being such a, a, and it's this, I'm so happy to see what you're doing because you're trying to do the same thing and it's necessary in each of these regions. It's that intersection between people and technology, isn't it? As you've been saying there, it's so easy for people to just do nothing, you know, and not change what they do. And, you know, they've been doing something for 20 years and, you know, somebody asks them to do something different. The easy answer is to say, no, we can't do that. Not because you can't, because doing something would involve thinking and doing, thinking outside the box and possibly doing something different, which which would mean a, a little bit of effort. And, yeah, uh, yeah, you're so right. I mean, I've been sitting in so many project meetings where people are just sort of, you know, I'm not doing that because that's not how it works. <laughs> right. Uh, and uh, yeah. And one, one additional point I'd like to make on that is the construction industry isn't the only industry going through a digital innovation and a digital transformation. Healthcare, banking, the f- entire finance systems. 
all of these industries are going through a digital transformation. What they have cued in on and keyed in on that construction is just now starting to recognize is the amount of time and energy you put into helping the human navigate the change is almost as equal to the outcome of success. And there are entire consulting groups around change management and how do you do change management and how do you look at culture in order to create psychological safety so you can have productive conflict. And I think because construction by nature is used to delivering through brute force, we'll throw bodies at it and we'll just push through timelines. Well, that has a cost and and that cost is showing in our suicide rates in the field, which are astronomically high due to injury from rushing, um, not thinking about how something's assembled and the limitations of the human body. So we're seeing a, a measurable impact. But if we rewind it back to the interaction between designer, engineer, contractor, what we're seeing there is there needs to be a new way of thinking of each other as those stakeholders in the process of of designing because it's whatever decisions are made there will have a direct human impact. And so if we can think of the stakeholders differently and make sure they have a seat at the table in order to inform the design, I think we're going to get there a little bit faster. But construction's just starting to recognize the importance of culture and the importance of having a person on the team who's an expert at either communication or facilitation. And in a way, contracts, I mean, have over the years built these strong walls between the the groups, uh, the types of contracts, maybe. And you know, we've had many situations over the years where the project has used BIM in design, but the designers won't give the models to the contractors, particularly at tender stage. So they say, they, they say well, once the, the contract is appointed, we'll, we'll give them the model. But you know, that means all the, the contractors tendering can't analyze the models. And the excuse used often in that instance, it is an excuse because, it's, it's, of course, they could, they could issue read-only models in Navisworks format or something. But the excuse is the, you know, there's no contractual relationship with the, the tenderers, and therefore we can't give them this, this information. So we'll, Or we'll just issue it for information purposes, or the designers are scared of the sort of unintended consequences of issuing their their models. And again, a lot of that is is incorrect thinking. It's just it's just a a fear. We live in such a litigious society nowadays, like you get sued for anything. And, uh, you know, so that's a sort of fear of what 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 if what if I give my model to somebody and they they do something yeah. wrong with it or you know well they misuse it or and it comes back to me and uh, yeah. so so the the contractual arrangements which probably sit at that intersection between people process and technology and those need to be reworked yeah and I, I often use the analogy that what we've done is we haven't quite built the supercar with with everything we're doing with data and 3d but we're getting pretty darn close so what we've essentially done is built a, a car that can go fast, can can break, can you know do all of these maneuvers, but we've attached it to a horse. And we've <laughs> said, all right, now why isn't this car performing? Because our contracts are the equivalent of attaching a performing, uh, a fully capable performing vehicle to a horse and then asking ourselves, why are we not seeing the result? Whereas if we think about it in terms of, and I apologize for the car metaphors. I love cars. Um, But think of it to like a closed track where you have 
Porsche has a great close track in Atlanta, Georgia, where you can come out and for a certain amount of money, you can come out and learn how to drive your car the way you always wanted to drive it on a closed course where it's safe. And it's been designed to test the limits of the car. And what I feel like we haven't done is we haven't architected and designed the space by our contracts to create that space where we could test the limits of our design through. That's the called BIM. The virtual <laughs> design. Yeah, build it twice. <laughs> Nobody does it though. Correct. How many projects? Yeah. How many projects are they still producing the BIM model after the building is constructed? Yeah, sadly, yes. <clears throat> Just to come in there, Sasha, and, and continue on with your car analogy. One series that I've been watching quite closely on Netflix recently is um, Formula One. Yeah. Uh, drive to survive and one of the leaders uh you know so i've had a fascination with the team principles in formula one uh for some time and to continue your analogy with cars car, cars and car racing teams um, and construction projects one of the well the team principal for mercedes toto wolf you know that mercedes are uh, you know, they're a championship winning team, like they've won a record number of times. And so really what, you know, why I was interested in, in what he's doing is because, you know, when I look at my internal team, we're a technology development company and, you know, I'm trying to foster the same level of success that he's having in Mercedes as in my team. And one of the one of the core principles, core factors of success is this culture that he has built around zero blame. He calls it the zero blame culture. And what that means is that we win together and we lose together. So for instance, if you lose, you you can't blame your other t your teammates, you vent your, your, vent your um, disappointment. Uh, you know, you can, you can be uh, passionate, uh, emotional, but you know, you don't point fingers and you know, once everything calms down, you take a strategic approach to actually assessing what, what went wrong and um, you try and do it better next time. But one of the really interesting, one of the other points to back up that he said was that if someone on the team fails to deliver, you know, doesn't show up to work, everyone else can pick up their role on the project, push forward. So there's at no point is there a stoppage in the project and, and the way that it's delivered. But if we take a systems view of the difference between a Formula One team um, working in the pit lanes and, and in the garages there, and we take the adversarial, and we compare that to the adversarial nature of the contracts that are put in place between our, you know, the contractor or the contractors and stakeholders, there's a huge juxtaposition there. And, and like, we're trying to expect our teams on site to perform like these Formula One teams, working together, et cetera. And, Meanwhile, on site, everyone's pointing their fingers, blaming one another, and and productivity is quite low. So my question would be, how do we remove these barriers, these this uh, this framework of pointing fingers, and evolve that into something where where we can, I suppose, be more like the Formula One. Uh, teams. I think Ralph, you might have some input here in uh, integrated pro project delivery, but I'm wondering what will it take really and, and what would the timelines be for us to push forward and make form make 
construction perform like a Formula One team? It is such a great analogy. And it's, I think it's wonderful to hear you talk about studying the Formula One race teams to look for nuggets of truth. I think it's the best thing we can do actually in industry is look at outside our industry at what's working and then use our creativity to apply it. And I would want Ralph to answer as well. Um, but my my initial thought is there isn't a silver bullet, nor is there a single answer. It's a yes and. Uh, until our contracts change, we will not be incentivizing in uh, an integrated project delivery method, or which is why IPD is so fascinating to watch, and it hasn't fully succeeded, and we haven't fully realized the power of an IPD project yet. And we've seen some, especially in the US, some catastrophic failures, but it's because we're testing. We shouldn't think of it as, yes, perfect. Here's the contract. It's all going to work because this is a three-legged stool we're building, the people, the process, and the technology. So part of it is how we create our contracts, which incentivize us to either share risk and reward or to insulate ourselves against risk. That is the first piece. The second piece to me is to what you spoke to, what is the culture we're creating? And the I remember one of the first lessons I learned, talk about three letter acronyms. The first lesson I learned starting as a specialty contractor was CYA, cover your, well, you can fill in the last word. <laughs> And so that was the first lesson uh, that you, uh, either R or uh, S. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll say it. Thank you. <laughs> Depending you on which side of the world you're on. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and so that was the first lesson I was taught. So the first thing I was taught was to protect myself and my company against risk. Well, you know, uh, having understood the way technology works, to me, I thought, well, that's just antiquated thinking because we no longer need to do that because technology creates such a great digital paper trail or such a breadcrumbs of, of ways that we can track information. You, you, I shouldn't be wasting my energy trying to mitigate risk and cover my butt. I should be leveraging technology to, to make sure we build it right virtually first before we actually build it in the field. So that culture piece of it, though, I think we've underestimated because you talk about this this leader uh, with the Formula One team creating a, you know, no failure zone or what we is now starting to be talked about in workplace psychology as psychological safety. The idea that there, there isn't a, a competitive environment set up with a punish and reward system. It's a united uh, team focused on an external problem as the enemy to solve, not each other as the competitors to overcome. And I think that's a component we've yet to really harness in construction. I'm grateful to be part of the leadership team at Procore that has uh, started an initiative called Culture Academy, which is a two and a half day immersive experience for executives to come on site when we don't have COVID, <laughs> on site at Procore's campus in, in Carpentria, California, and to talk to their peers and to talk about what is the culture we want to perpetuate, what are our biggest challenges as a company, and how do we define culture in order to drive our business? Because whether you know it or not, culture eats strategy for lunch. Not my words, I'm copying. <laughs> These words have been spoken, but it's, it is true and I've seen it. So if we're not 
intentional about thinking about creating teams and creating that space for psychological safety and being intentional about what your particular firm's culture is because of the business you want to drive, your culture will continue to drive your business and you will have the, the different outcomes than what you want and you'll continue to scratch your head and blame people. As a leader, your uh, gift to your team is to have the thought behind the intention of the culture you want to create in order to create an environment that leads your team to success. And this this industry particularly, uh, it attracts type A type personalities, people who wake up to solve, like the what gets your blood going is having to solve a problem. You're not looking for banking hours. So when you have individuals like that working on a team, if you're not intentional about the culture you're creating around them, you won't get the outcomes you want. So I think contracts are the first part, but the second part really is looking at what is our culture and are we intentionally creating a culture to allow people to fail to learn, to adapt um, in a safe space with enough parameters that there's still the solvency for the business, but we're really allowing people to push the bounds. I think on the culture side, there's there's probably a, a part of the construction industry's culture that a lot of people don't think about and don't talk about. And that's, it's kind of a dark side of the construction. I mean, the way construction works is people buy contracts. So main yes. GCs will buy a contract and then they'll divvy up that contract and, and sell portions of that contract to subcontracts and hopefully make a margin on those on those transactions. And those subcontracts will then be, you know, some, uh, a subcontractor will buy that subcontract and they'll try and break that up into further subcontracts until it gets down to somebody who actually has to do the work. And that poor guy who has to do the work is you know, getting the smallest piece of the pie, if you like. And uh, is so far removed from the the main contract and the the main engagement with the the building owner and the client that you know all they're trying to do is get their piece of work done and move on to the next piece of work and put food on right. the table. Yeah, I think we that's worth remembering and thinking about how that functions. And to bring it back to the analogy of the Formula One, you know, I think the reason the Formula One culture works is because they have a they have leverage technology to measure performance like every car in formula one has about 300 sensors that are feed uh, feeding constantly information back to dashboards and right. so we're not relying on saying to someone look john it's your job to to change the tires and you, you know make sure you do that <laughs> yeah. and and, the, and there's no way of measuring that whether the tires have been changed or not like Correct. The, the the technology knows whether you've done your job or not and you know it will come up whereas in con construction it's it's the, the equivalent of saying john he has a he has a contract to change the tires uh it's your job and i'm not going to check whether you do it just do it <laughs> yeah you know, I, haven't, I haven't got the time and i haven't got the means to check whether you've done your job or not whether you've done it properly if the tires fall off halfway down down the track then we know you haven't done your job properly but that's too late you know so we allow buildings to fail dramatically before we start blaming each other in court and yeah you know, that's the wrong time to to be checking to your point the the 300 sensors all the sensors that are in the automobile majority of sensors in construction are the people in the field and what we've not been able to fully realize yet is a data flow from the field that's real time. Yeah. And the 
the black hole really of information is what was the success and failing in the field and based on 2D, 3D, 4D, 6D, 5D information, um, they're, they're, the individuals in the field are generating this, this information through their activities, but requiring them to go back to a trailer and report or to document, not capture the work while it's getting done, is one of the biggest challenges we have. I think to the point of measuring, what we measure is what matters. And what tech technology really has started to do is to create one-off siloed solutions that can measure one activity in the field. What we're looking at, and this is one of the reasons why I, I love Procore's vision as a platform technology, is how do we make sure the data can be integrated from these small solutions that are being leveraged in the field to gather that information so that we can actually look holistically at the information as true data, but it really isn't until we think about the work that's being done in the field. And if they can do the work and capture data while they're doing the work, we're for the first time gonna really start to see what are the major influences to budget and time constraints and being over uh, or under. We'll really start to see that piece, but it's not until the technology is easy enough to use for the field that they can then start to produce that data so we can look at this project holistically. And how people get work done in the field, I think, is something that there's so much venture capital money going in to fund a lot of these startups trying to solve this problem. But it really is centered around what are we doing to make that individual in the field digitally literate so that they aren't having to bear the burden of change on their own. And that's a really big piece of what the education component of what Procore.org delivers is, you know, content around we just did a five part series on data. What is data? Why does it matter? In order to have a conversation with that person in the office and in the field to say, this is how this will benefit you. And this is how this can play a different role in what you do. And so this education piece is really important. If nobody understands what's in it for them, or we're actually not making their job easier. The litmus test of the field, I say, is the quickest test you'll get. <laughs> They'll tell you quickly if you've done a good job or not, making it simple, yeah. digestible, and understandable for their benefit and their value. But imagine, imagine the holistic measurement we can make of the construction process if we had each of those nodes in the field actually producing data that we could leverage. But I suppose it comes back to that, you know, who, where's the incentive in that traditional culture of construction? So if, you know, if you're a building owner and you've, you've sold a contract and you've, you've effectively transferred the risk. You said to the contractor, let's agree a, a guaranteed maximum price. You'll build this building for this price. I give you all the, the risk <laughs> and the contractor buys that. And then he effectively turns around and sells subcontracts on the same basis. And he doesn't, you know, in, in that sort of traditional culture, nobody cares whether you have to work hard, work double shifts, work, whatever, to get your job done, whether you, you never see your family or, you know, like as long as you deliver your piece of the contract within the, the price we've agreed and the time that we've agreed, yeah, that's fine. When you look at that sort of traditional structure of incentives, like who's, who has the incentive and even the time and the, the margin to invest in technologies that will improve the process? And of course, any business owner in that value chain 
can benefit at, at their individual level. Often the information they're receiving from the level above them is of such poor quality that having technology is probably not going to do much for you anyway. Correct. Yeah. So, and this is where this brings us to this integrated approach. So in that traditional structure, so many levels and so many people taking a slice of the pie as it goes down the chain, a, a large portion of the cost is not producing any material value at all. It's just in financial transactions between all these parties and all the lawyers involved between all these parties. And so the integrated approach is, well, what if we all somehow got onto the same team, like the Mercedes team you were talking about. And um, yeah, and like, let's say, let's all win. Like, let's all race, let's, let's all enter this race together. Let's, let's all leverage all the pieces together and you know, let's win. So we, so you've seen over time design build contracts where a GC will take more, more of a controlling role of both the design and the construction or the integrated project delivery where both basically the owner, the contractors and the designers get into a single contract between themselves to deliver a piece of a building or piece of infrastructure where everybody shares the pain and shares the gain. Yeah, so and that's kind of the, the ultimate. Even though we've known about these things for 10 years or plus, you know, the uptake of IPD and alliancing, those type of alliancing type of contracts is still quite low in comparison uh, because yeah. To your earlier point, it's easier just to do what you always did. You know, it's easy yes. just to, for for owners, it's easy just to sign a check and say, look, I'll give you all the risk. You know, give me a building at the end. I don't care how you do it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and that's really where, I mean, I, I wake up each day excited for supporting the team that's doing this work because um, after, you know, 16 years in industry, really trying to, approach the challenges through the integration of understanding human psychology and the interplay of individuals with technology. I've really decided the fact that Procore has invested in a team that only does deliver social impact at a dis at a, at a it's free, it's donated. Their time, the salaries of the individuals on my team is all part of their commit to give back to industry. It's one of the reasons why I'm so excited, because even if we had 60% of the industry say, okay, starting tomorrow, all of our contracts are IPD, our mentalities have not shifted mm. because we've created muscle memory around mitigating risk. So the need for there to be free education content for the individual to upskill themselves, to help themselves through that transitioning of how they think about their project partners and approaching them. Who carries that burden? For individuals who have 30 plus years of knowing intuitively how to put together raw materials into something functional and strong, um, but don't really wanna do it with an iPad in their hand, how do we help them understand how the iPad creates a better design for the next project? And those lessons can be carried forward to where their the, the physical labor of putting this together could be more intelligent based on that feedback coming from the field. And finally, for those leaders who are trying to carry the message as the evangelist of technology to the project partners, how do we give them the tools to help them equip the others around them to understand the change mindset of what does it mean to be a fixed mindset or a change mindset? And so the content the number one requested content from the Procore.org team 
is all around soft skills. Mm. How do we build inclusive teams? How do we how do we think of safety on a personal level to avoid injury and opioid abuse and suicide? So these soft skills are are things that are so needed. So in my mind, I was like, who who carries that burden? Everyone already has their technical budgets. They already have their people budgets. But who carries this, what I call, gap burden? Mm -hmm. And that's for me, having spent so many years in industry, this is work that I'm really excited by because I feel like it's the right work to do that doesn't necessarily fall on one's shoulders. But the fact that Procore said that this is meaningful to them to give back, it's really, truly an honor to be a part of saying, okay, we need to create this content that helps change mindsets. We need to create this content that helps address why mental health is so poor in the field. And we need to create this content so that the technology can get adopted more readily because we're telling the humans how. How is it going to benefit you? So to your point, I think this is why the work I'm doing is is really, truly rewarding. That's fascinating. because This is the great thing about these conversations we've been having. Because what we're talking about here is almost like a social innovation. Yeah, not a techno technological innovation, uh, but it's still innovation. I mean, it's the innovation that's so sorely required in in our industry of you know, breaking the, that, well, change, not breaking the culture, maybe that's the wrong word, but changing the culture. And, Correct, yeah, yes. Yeah, and uh, so innovation doesn't have to always be, you know, like I think people think when you talk about innovation, it, it has to be about technology. But, it, but, that, but as bringing your, going back to your earliest point, it's the people, the process, the technology, and the intersection of those. And it's innovation in process. It's innovation in, you know, people or social innovation, if you want to give it a label. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, te and technological innovation and the, and the intersection. And the nice thing about technology is it, it cuts through a lot of that. You know, technology exposes, because it can process information so quickly, it brings transparency and brings clarity where before maybe people would report once a month about progress, technology can report, you know, every five milliseconds. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, so so you can catch you can catch issues far quicker. You know, if somebody's underperforming, you're not waiting a month to find out on the on the, the, the monthly report. You know, you can find out in that day and you can go and talk to the person, say, you know, what's happening? Are you having particular problems, you need time off or, yeah, yeah. and uh, how can we mitigate this escalating into a, a much bigger problem? Yes, and we're actually seeing that. One of the most recent um, universities that has become a Procore.org customer was the Nelson Mandela University. And we're, we're just trying to figure out what our international strategy is. Most of this work is focused on the U.S., but we're starting to get pulled into other markets. And the Nelson Mandela University reached out to us because after I think it was the 2010 or 2011 Olympics, after they hosted the Olympics, their economy really took a hit. And so construction projects now are being brutally undercut, undercutting each other to get the lowest bid to get the work. But because of this environment, they're not able to deliver on these projects in a timely manner when, when there's um, delays in the field. So the Nelson Mandela University recognized we need to get our students thinking data first and the constructs of construction process. So they've started giving, you know, through Procore's platform, they're giving students real world data from projects that are failing, having the students try to work through. 
having their own data sets to try to think what is going on, where are the delays, how do we mitigate the delays? So really starting to teach the students to think about managing the project from a data perspective first, which of course, I mean, right now what we have are people having shouting matches in the field and he or she who shouts loudest will win based on a gut feeling. But when we actually have a conversation that's informed around data, it can remove the personalization and both can then look at the information and the problem abstractly together and solve it together. And so Nelson Mandela University was really exciting to hear that their curriculum leaders said, we need to teach our students to think from a data perspective as superintendents in the field. And so I think that's that's some of the exciting work that I'm seeing happening around the globe, which gives me a lot of hope. Well, we've look, we've um, come to the hour and we could probably talk for another few hours. It's just fantastic. And you're a very optimistic, positive person. Tell us just what frustrates you? I mean, what, uh, what would you really like to see changed? Where would you like to see massive innovation occur in, in this sector? I'll start with what I think what I'm I'm most excited and optimistic about, and it's that by nature, construction is designed to be most successful when it's overcoming problems and it's adjusting to um, get the work done regardless of the, the obstacle. Construction is built that way. How technology is continuing to deliver solutions in order to aid that process is very, very, it's still exciting for me to see all the innovation. The piece for me that I'm most passionate about really is people. You know, much like John was talking about, I have individuals in my family also in construction and they're my litmus test. If they don't understand what I'm talking about, then I know I have to go back to the drawing board and and re-articulate the value um, in order for them to really truly see it. And I'm starting to see the culture being addressed by leaders in construction who say, our goal is to be in the employer choice, therefore we're going to think differently about our people. And the trade unions looking at how they look at labor and negotiations around labor, recognizing the power of the individual, and they're starting to ask the right questions of how do we leverage technology so that we're doing better job of taking care of this commodity that our people that we negotiate into contracts. And that's where I see some of the most amazing innovations to come. Because if we don't solve this PR problem, we will not get the new talent to stay. We may attract them, but they won't stay. So to me, it's seeing leaders within the construction industry not only invest in technology, but start to invest in the culture. That makes me most optimistic about the future. What would you say to a teacher of young people or a parent of young people? Well, if you put me in front of them, <laughs> they won't get a word in edgewise for 30 minutes because I'll just talk about how amazing it is. But that's exactly what we're working on. So we're trying to work with Apple and ConstructReach and, and others to say, how can we create content materials that can help a parent or an educator understand the value of what is in construction? And it's going to take multiple voices. But my my just initial thought is, if you want your child to wake up every day feeling excited about the challenges ahead, potentially equally frustrated, but to create something that they can point to their children and their children's children and say, I had a hand in building that. If you want your children to feel a sense of purpose, construction is the job for them. John, do you have any last questions or 
I mean, from my perspective, I think this conversation got off to a great start when you said people process then technology. That was, you know, that's really set the theme for today with me. And the one takeaway uh, quote from you, uh, Sasha, was where you stated that as a leader, we have the luxury of the intention to create the culture that really wraps up that people and process. And I think, you know, putting those together along with culture is is the crux of the industry problems. Technology is not. And <laughs> from someone who's been swimming in technology for the last seven years, I'm coming, my head is coming above the water now, and I'm seeing that as clear as day. So I'd really like to thank you. Um, I think your role and the work you're doing as part of Procore.org and the CPC Coalition really is inspiring. And if I could, I'd really, I'd love, or well, I'd really like if you could um, bring uh, a piece or a, a blog entry to the achive.net platform about all these soft skills that you're working on. So, so uh, with, you know, around this and bring that to the community um, and invite them to engage in this process of, you know, within the Procore.org and CPC environment. And uh, yeah, I think that would really benefit our community. So thank you again. Well, my pleasure. Happy to. Thank you. And Sasha, any final words of inspiration for the audience as we <laughs> close this out? Two. One to both of you. Um, the more there are individuals passionate about creating conversations to bring ourselves to a higher level of agreement as an industry, the more the merrier. So thank you for the work that you're doing here, creating conversation. And second, um, I think the, the beauty of 2020 is it distilled for us what matters. My, I guess my wish for everyone listening is um, I hope you take some time at the end of this year during the holiday season to really take away the silver lining of 2020 to distill down what really matters. And, and I encourage you um, in 2021 to put 100% of your energy into those things that matter because that's where we'll start to see real impact. Excellent. And from my side, I just want to thank you. It was a fascinating talk. Uh, we will keep talking, I'm pretty sure about that. <laughs> and um, you wish you all the best. I hope you have a great break at, uh, over the holidays and we'll be speaking in the new year. So thanks very much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you both.